The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V, and pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. Hello, Tom. I'd like to ask everyone to pray for a couple of little children tonight. Okay. We have a five-year-old boy, Adam, who has leukemia, and a relative of his, a three-year-old girl named Alexandra, who has developed an autoimmune disease which is threatening her life. She's even now fighting for her life in the emergency room in the hospital. So I, I ask you to keep these two little children in your prayers, everyone. Sure. Please. We can do that. Thank you. No problem. I'd like to begin, Father, with a question concerning Archbishop Lefebvre. So we have a, a viewer who wrote in and uh, says, I would like to know how Archbishop Lefebvre retained his Catholicity after having willingly placed his name and signature to the uh, heretical documents of Vatican II? Okay, well, it's kind of a loaded question. Yeah. Heretical documents of Vatican II, okay. Uh, people use the word heresy very loosely. Uh, the word heresy is actually defined by the Code of Canon Law. There's a definition to it, so it's not just whatever um, person doesn't like. You know. So, um, there is nothing in the in the documents of Vatican II that explicitly denies a dogma of faith that has been defined de fide catholica uh, by the Catholic Church. Um, now, uh, this doesn't make the documents of Vatican II right or good. They're very dangerous, and probably the danger is that they do not have an explicit denial of the doctrines of the faith. The problem is they're so ambiguous, they are heterodox. And heterodoxy can be more dangerous than heresy in certain places. If you want to deceive Catholics, for example, if you want to waylay the Catholic Church, um, uh, you wouldn't necessarily come out with an explicit denial of the real presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. You'd create a, a, a liturgy that um, that affirms it and denies it, so it's ambiguous, which is what, like the new mass. Um, so actually, it creates doubt, and that doubt then eventually results into denial. Um, the heresy um, of the monothelites, for example, uh, found its way into the creed proposed by Sergius, the Patriarch of Constantinople back in the early 600s. He decided to use a heterodox form, heterodox meaning it, it could be interpreted in different ways, to have both the Catholics who understand it, understand it in their way and the monothelite heretics understand it in their way even though they were two mutually exclusive understandings. You see, you can play with words like that. And uh, the bishop who was uh, in Jerusalem at the time, Sophronius, now Saint Sophronius, sounded the alarm because he saw the danger here. Okay, And um, <clears throat> to a certain extent, that ambiguity also found... And by the way, uh, to finish that story, uh, the Pope Honorius I, who received the alarm bell from uh, Sophronius, decided just to enjoin silence on everyone. So rather than preach the, the truth, and he decided that we're, we, it's too controversial, we're not going to get into that, so he enjoined everyone to silence. He was later condemned by the Church for that, excommunicated after his death and condemned as a heretic, for failing to live up to his responsibility as Pope to condemn heresy and to speak the truth, teach the truth about the faith, about our Lord. It had to do with the very nature of our Lord. 
and whether he had a functioning human will or not. Very important question. The entire redemption turns on a question like that. So, um, but even Arius, Arius, the uh, the priest, uh, would use ambiguity to his advantage. You had the Arians, and then you had the semi-Arians, right? And uh, so, ambiguity has always been the uh, very dangerous uh, uh, element of heretics. It doesn't mean that the modernists behind Vatican II were not heretics. It just has to do with the medium they used to, to insert their heresy, to plant their heresy. But I asked Archbishop Lefebvre uh, myself about this one, one day, and uh, <clears throat> we were in Armadia, Michigan. And I asked the, the Archbishop how, it, uh, how we can possibly not see heresy within the document Dignitatis Humanae Personae, the last document of the Vatican Council so-called, which said that um, the gospel itself teaches, and Christ himself teaches in the gospel, that uh, you know, people have a right to profess their religion, albeit a false religion, in society. How can that be a God-given right? Um, and the Archbishop explained that he saw that error, and he saw it as an error against the faith, certainly, uh, he said it's implicit in the document, but it's not, it's not made explicit. And he was very definite about that. So um, one has to remember uh, that um, at the time of Vatican II, um, the the, those who were masterminding, the modernists masterminding Vatican II, were <clears throat> uh, doctoring their, 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 uh, their documents, okay? They were doctoring them so that they would have explicit statements of the Catholic faith, such as, for example, the, the opening of the doctrine, the uh, document on religious liberty, the very document I'm talking about. Dignitatis Personae, Dignitatis Humanae, Personae, um, starts with a, an explicit statement of the Catholic faith, which harmonizes perfectly with the Catholic faith. <clears throat> no sooner does it finish this, a section which it added to the front of the document in order to win over the Catholics, you know, <laughs> um, then it begins to call into question and raise exceptions. Something you'll find if you read the documents of Vatican II from beginning to end, you'll find that is often the case. It's not just an, an isolated case that happened at the end of the council. Time and time again, there's a statement that, that agrees with the Catholic faith. And then after that is said, it gets into raising exceptions, doubts, on the other hand, and basically undoing what it just said. But uh, they doctored these documents to the point where they, they uh, thought that they could convince Catholics, Catholic prelates to sign them in good conscience. And uh, the fact that Archbishop Lefebvre himself could sign a document or two, or all, even all of them. I don't know that he signed all the documents of Vatican II. I don't think he did. I don't know that he signed Dignitatis Humanae Personae on Religious Liberty. I don't think so. Um, but, um, again, you know, none of them contains explicit heresy. Um, no, no one that I know among the, uh, even the traditional Catholic prelates afterwards has, has pointed that out, that they contain explicit heresy, and that anyone who signed them was actually agreeing to testifying his belief to explicit heresy. Uh, I'm sure the, the Archbishop of Fev did lament and regret, and one might even say repent of signing some of those documents. But uh, when he saw what was made of them, the explicit things that were stated with regard to the faith uh, were overpowered by the implicit things that were said against it. And uh, that's what it's called, the, the spirit of Vatican II. And that's, that's how they're justified often.
uh, justified by saying, well, look what it says. And then you say, well, look what it, look what it meant, <laughs> you know. You say, well, and then people say, well, how can you say what it says is one thing and what it meant is another. And then you say, well, uh, look at all the terrible things that became of this doctrine, how it was applied. And they say, well, it was misapplied um, because it was misunderstood. The enemy got in and twisted it and followed the spirit of Vatican II and not the letter of Vatican II. You say, well, well, wait a minute, it was applied by the very bishops who were at Vatican II and who voted for these documents. They came back and they applied it in this way. So how can you say that uh, there's nothing wrong with the actual documents when the bishops themselves, if they didn't understand them, then obviously then when they voted for them, it meant nothing, and Vatican II was a complete farce. It had no validity at all. If the people of the bishops who voted for these documents did not understand what they were and what they meant, uh, then why are we even talking about Vatican II as a, as a council of the church? You know. Um, <clears throat> but uh, if they did understand them, uh, how do we how do we know what they understood when they signed? And the answer is by what they did when they came back from the council and applied the documents. This is what the documents meant to them. So. Uh, but that wouldn't necessarily be what they meant to, to uh, Archbishop V. Um, the one man on the face of the earth who understood modernism is Pope Pius X. He really understood modernism, as a saint can understand error. I think Archbishop V had a good grasp of it, but he would not say, I'm another St. Pius X, not at all, you know. Um, I think he was a very great man, and I, uh, uh, I, I do believe uh, that he had a great love for God. You know, but St. Pius X had an understanding of modernism that came basically with the papacy. And he was, uh, you know, there are times that demand a great pope. A good pope will not do. It's just not enough. There are times that simply demand a great pope. And St. Pius X was a great pope. Those who followed him might have been good popes, more or less, but the times demanded great pope. And nothing less would do. And so all the damage, they did, they did not understand, they did not understand modernism. They just didn't grasp it. You know? And so often they played right into the hands of the modernists. Did they do it willingly? John the Twenty-Third, absolutely, is a modernist. John the, Paul the Sixth, absolutely, a modernist, a leftist. You know, like like Roncalli, Maltini is a modernist and a leftist. And um, but I mean, before them, Pius the Twelfth, before Ben, Pius the Eleventh, Benedict the Fifteenth. I mean, were these men Catholics? Yes, were they? Good popes, I think you could argue that in many ways they were. Were they great popes? No. And they were, and it may, as I say, a good pope at a time that demands a great pope. The church is going to suffer. Everyone's going to suffer. So, uh, in any case, um, uh, Archbishop Lefebvre was not the pope. So we cannot say he was a great pope. I think he was a great archbishop. <laughs> um, but... Um, I don't know that he really saw in its plenitude where all this was going. Um, I don't know that he grasped the, the full horror of it at the time at Vatican II. I'm sure it was very confusing, very alarming, um, but um, St. Pius X would have seen this. I mean, he, he saw right there in, in almost the DNA of modernism everything that it would become and everything that it would do. Mm -hmm. But that is a divine insight, you know. So we have to be very careful about judging people too harshly because um, we see clearly now uh, where this was all leading. Um, because uh, back at the time... Uh, there were others who did not, mm -hmm. necessarily. Um, so, anyway. 
you know, Father, I think you make a great point about uh, mo how modernists will say one thing and mean another and have that ambiguity there. And uh, I know that the example you always give is how modernists can say that we have faith, yet they can have an entirely different concept of faith than, than what a traditional Catholic does. And the vocabulary they use, they don't mean the same thing. The same Ex exactly, and, and I think um, that it's a real testament to their shrewdness, I guess you could mm -hmm. say, that... Um, I've, I've read before that, that after after the, the, the Second Vatican Council, uh, many many people in the church thought that things would just kind of go back to normal. They didn't really understand the magnitude of, mm. of what had happened. And mm -hmm. That just goes to show how um, how ambiguous everything was, which is exactly what the modernists do. That's exactly what they want. That was mm. precisely their goal. But perhaps maybe you cannot uh, fault everyone for not having the insight that uh, Pope St. Pius X did. Yeah, well, what makes our writer think that back then he would have thought any better, or even it would have had a glimmer of insight into what was going on back then. Um, guarantees. You know, it's, a, it's a grace. Our Lord said that we must be as shrewd as serpents and guileless as doves, you know. And that's a difficult, that's difficult, and that takes a grace. The modernists are as shrewd as serpents and as guileless as serpents, right? They are serpents. Uh, there are those who are as Guileless as doves, but they are guileless. They're 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 shrewd as doves too. I mean, they they they, they don't they interpret other people's uh, intentions to be as good as their own. And the modernists take advantage of that. They take advantage of the gullible. And I don't. I wouldn't say Archbishop Lefebvre was gullible, but I would say this: even Saint Pius the Tenth. You know, if you read the encyclical Pascendi Dominici Gregis of 1907, September 8th, 1907, I mean, we're coming up to the 110th anniversary of that very date. If you read that encyclical, St. Pius X says that he himself tried for quite some time to deal with, and I don't mean deal with the modernists uh, in the sense of negotiating the faith, I mean, he tried to deal with the problem of modernism by approaching the modernists in good faith. And he, it took him quite some time to come to the point where he said, it is simply not possible. I've tried, he said, as a cardinal, patriarch of Venice, right? As a bishop in Mantua. He tried the, the path of assuming goodwill on their part. He says so himself at the beginning of his own encyclical. And he said, now, there's just no other way. They have to be dealt with in a very bold, uncompromising way, because they are filled with pride. Their audacity is their method of getting what they want. And their objection, their objective is ultimately the destruction of the Catholic Church and all true religion. And they are the most dangerous enemies the Church has ever faced, because they're within her very bosom, they understand here, and they attack not just a doctrine of the faith, they attack the, they attack the very nature of faith itself. So when Pius X confesses to having tried to, to deal with them in a charitable, understanding way, assuming goodwill on their part for, for years, how can anybody fault an Archbishop Lefebvre for at Vatican II, uh, being confronted with an, a problem that was unprecedented uh, in, the, in the history of the Church. Pius X says that. He said this is unprecedented. So, uh, no, I think it's a big mistake to uh, <clears throat> sit back and Monday morning, Monday morning, morning quarterback <laughs> in a case like this. Mm -hmm. Well, let's move on, Father. I've got a question here about the St. Michael the Archangel prayer. Uh, so this viewer asks if you would discuss that prayer, um, and they, they write in here and say that uh, by a decree of Benedict XVI around, promulgated around 2006, uh, he said under penalty of sin that the original prayer was not to be prayed, only priests giving, given the authority as exorcists could use this prayer. It was forbidden for Catholic laity to use this prayer composed by Leo XIII. And this appears to be another attempt of Vatican II to do away with transmission of apostolic papal teaching and tradition of the one holy Catholic apostolic church. Would you comment on that, Father? I sincerely doubt that that's true. And I'd like to know where this uh, lady or gentleman got this information. And I would appreciate it if they could. 
I mean, if, if, if in fact, Benedict the Sixteenth did forbid the use of this prayer, uh, I'd be very surprised that he would even allude to the prayer. I wouldn't think he would want the prayer to be known. <clears throat> this uh, full prayer of, of Leo the Thirteenth from the 1880s right, was <clears throat> actually penned by Pope Leo the Thirteenth after an experience he had at St. Peter's Basilica after offering Mass. Right? He heard a conversation between Satan and our Lord. Satan challenging our Lord, I will destroy your church. <clears throat> and our Lord responding, well, what time do you need? And Satan saying, give me 100 years. And our Lord allowed this. <clears throat> our Lord said, I will give you that time. Now, <clears throat> you know, one might say this sounds rather peculiar, but if you go back to the book of, book of Job in the Old Testament, it, it portrays Lucifer going before God. Of course, Lucifer has never seen God as the other angels have seen him. He, he, he failed, right? But presenting himself there in the presence of God and saying, uh, you know, I, I will destroy Job's faith. And uh, give, just give me the chance, I'll prove it to you. I mean, you can see Lucifer doing something like that. This is his specialty, right? Destroying innocence, right? That's what evil is. And uh, God said, well, you, I, you know, make that challenge, you can. You know, you can take that effort. And God allowed Job to be afflicted by Satan. But God also knew what graces he was going to give to Job to sanctify him by these, by these sufferings. And so rather than tear Job down, uh, Satan's temptations and, and afflictions were actually occasions of building Job up and do a great saint by the grace of God. Because Job was cooperating with God's grace. See? So um, it just goes to show Satan's lack of understanding of, of how, how grace works. Uh, he's totally oblivious, as it were, because he himself has shut grace out. <clears throat> you know? so, but in, in any case, um, so the idea of Satan challenging God is not unusual. I mean, this is the whole point, right? That he is, he is he's the ape of God and he wants to challenge God. Um, but uh, so, so the prayer that was penned by Pope Leo the Thirteenth is a lengthy prayer to Saint Michael the Archangel to defend the Church. Okay, is it a prayer of exorcism? Well, any prayer against Lucifer is a prayer of exorcism. The short prayer that we have that we all know, Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle, be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. That short prayer is also a prayer of exorcism. <clears throat> And so any prayers, for example, invoking uh, St. Michael the Archangel to reign in the devil and drive him out is a prayer of exorcism. Right? But I, I wouldn't think the, uh, the modernists would necessarily want to make an issue of that full-length prayer of Pope Leo XIII. First of all, as I recall, okay, as I recall, that prayer was given in the Recolta, which is the official prayer book of the Church for the Indulgence Prayers, uh, throughout the reign of Pope Pius X, St. Pius X. Uh, it seems to me, I, I recall <coughs> seeing a 1910 edition of the Recolta with that full prayer of St. Michael the Archangel in that. And as a prayer in the Recolta, it would have been an indulgence prayer and available for the Catholic people to pray. So a hundred years later, for a Benedict XVI to say, well, that's reserved for exorcists, so you can't pray that, would be a reversal of a traditional practice of the Church. It seems to me that that prayer disappeared from the Recolta after St. Pius X. One could easily check that by getting the two different editions, let's say a 1910 edition and a 1920 edition, and see if there's something different there. But uh, I would expect that the modernists would want that prayer to disappear because in the course of the prayer, it talks about the enemies of the church setting their sights on the apostolic throne of St. Peter and, and wanting to surround it, you know, and take it. 
And uh, that's very a very poignant point today. So poignant point is kind of redundant, but <clears throat> today, I mean, that's very significant when you see who or what is, you know, <laughs> there, um, <clears throat> when you see Francis there, you yeah. So, uh, and you also are aware of uh, the plan of the modern, of the, of the Masons in Italy to uh, actually themselves fill that, that place, right? Uh, to take control of the uh, chair of Peter by installing one of their own select hand-picked representatives there, someone of their own creation and who would do their will. And uh, as they said, set the four corners of the world on fire with revolution. <clears throat> I mean, armies, <clears throat> plots involving thousands and thousands of conspirators could not accomplish what one white-robed pope could do just by a word. And they understood that. The, the Masons understood it, the moderns understood it. And um, <clears throat> Again, you know, it takes you back to St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, when St. Peter was denying that Christ was going to die on the cross and uh, arguing with our Lord, saying, no, 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 no. Here's Peter absolutely rejecting the whole concept of our Lord's sacrificial death upon the cross. And our Lord says to him, the man he just called Peter the Rock, the man who just said he was, he was going to give him the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and the gates of hell would not prevail. To that very man, just moments later, our Lord says to, to get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art a scandal to me, because you mind the things of man and not the things of God. Well, that's the kind of pope the modernists wanted. That's the kind of pope the masons wanted. Someone who would mind the things of man and not the things of God, and that is Francis. So, in any case, um... <clears throat> Uh, I, I would just say to this, I'd like to see what reference this, this uh, person is making. Uh, I've never heard this before, okay? I would, I would certainly doubt it for any number of reasons. I mentioned a few. <clears throat> but, you know, after Vatican II, uh, with the changes, the, the, the first sacrament to be changed was not that of the Holy Eucharist and the rite of Mass. That was the second sacrament they changed, what they changed before that was the, the right of ordaining priests and consecrating bishops. Uh, that's the first place they, they got to work. And the first fruit of their modernist efforts to change the sacramental order of the Catholic Church was aimed at the rights of ordaining, uh, of ordaining deacons, ordaining priests, and consecrating bishops. That's very significant, you know. And so um, what they did was they reworked the, the, whole, the whole progression of orders received toward being ordained priests. They took the four minor orders and they eliminated two of them. One of them was exorcist. To this day, they, don't, they do not have a minor order of exorcist ordaining priests exorcists. And they eliminated that back in the early 1970s. So, uh, I mean, there's a statement of that. There's a reason why Father Amorth came out and wrote his book, you know, Exorcist Tells His Story, because he says the Catholic clergy is failing miserably in, in uh, holding off the powers of Satan in the world. He said that's why the world is being engulfed in Satanism, the Satanic influence. He, he acknowledged that. So, uh, in any case, um, for, for Benedict, uh, I guess would they say Benedict XVI, mm -hmm. to say only exorcists can, can pray this prayer? Well, the, you know, in the, the, the Novus they don't even, ex, even ordain exorcists anymore <laughs> on the way to the priesthood. So, again, I, I find the whole thing very peculiar, and I, I'd, I'd like to know. I would be very grateful to this individual who bring it to my attention. Uh, if he can also produce the documentation necessary to verify it. Sure, we can do that. We can follow up there. Let's uh, move on, though, Father, to a question here about marriage. Uh, so this viewer writes in and says, um, if you have a baptized Novus Ordo Catholic and a non-baptized non-Catholic, 
attempting a marriage with a justice of the peace, is there any kind of marriage taking place? No. No. Okay. No. Why not? Someone baptized a Catholic, even a Novoselic Catholic, right? They're baptized Catholic. They think they're Catholic. This is all they know is Catholic. Okay. They have the will to be Catholic. Um. Cannot validly marry before a justice of the peace. Cannot validly marry before anyone, but a Catholic priest and ordinarily a duly authorized Catholic priest. Uh, the Church made an exception in the in missionary countries. Uh, you have the Canons ten ninety eight, ten ninety nine, and so on, from the real Code of Canon Law, not the John the not the John Paul II Code of Canon Law in nineteen eighty three eighty four. Uh, that, you know, stated that a Catholic, ordinarily, must be married not only by a Catholic priest, but by a duly authorized Catholic priest. But that in mission circumstances, uh, that uh, that rule was relaxed so that Catholics could exchange marriage vows before witnesses and be validly married. And then have their vows... uh, witnessed even by a non-authorized priest, as it were, but they would be valid, they'd be validly married, you know? But there's no talk there about being uh, married by a justice of the peace or a Protestant minister or anything of the kind. In fact, to go to a religious authority other than a Catholic uh, to be married would mean one would be automatically excommunicated for that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Then, uh, Father, we have a question about baptism of blood and desire here. Uh, so this, this viewer says that this, this doctrine seems to be rather cumbersome and would like to know how it became established. What? Baptism, baptism of, of blood, and, blood and, desire. and desire? Okay. Cumbersome. <clears throat> cumbersome doctrine. Uh, well, again, I guess I'd like a definition of cumbersome. I, I don't know how a doctrine can be cumbersome. Um, but I, I, you know, in their own minds, I guess, you know, they see it that way. Um, they say that it could be seen as ecumenical. Ecumen- well, it could be, uh, in the sense that the liberals can falsify the doctrine. And I think that's what Father Feeney was reacting to back in the 30s. He saw, I think he saw liberals expanding that doctrine to make it basically meaningless, uh, saying anybody who has any vague idea of uh, of God or just being nice has an implicit desire to serve God, be faithful, be baptized, and automatically is on the road to heaven. You know that's what the liberals would have you believe. You know? <coughs> but you know it doesn't do any good to say, well, look, there are these people who are misinterpreting this teaching of the church. They're expanding it to make it meaningless. So I think I'm just going to deny it. You know, so if they, if they are going to falsify the church's teaching on baptism of desire, I'm just going to deny that there is such a thing. That doesn't help. You know, um, you, you 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 couldn't oppose the Arian heresy, which which basically makes of our Lord merely a creature and denies his divinity by saying. Well, I'm going to oppose Arianism by saying that Christ is a divine being, and he's no, there's no creature there, period. There's no humanity there. And there, there were heretics who did that. So they went to the other extreme. But you're not going to get truth from extremes. You know, truth is what it is, right? So, um, but you'll notice something, I think, Tom, I have to say this. You notice that there are those who deny that the church's teaching on baptism of desire and baptism of blood, but they are extremists. They, they, they are the type of people who just go to extremes in virtually everything, okay? And uh, at least that's how I see it, Okay. Uh, they think the, if you can, uh, you know, the most extreme position you can find it must be the true one. And if you can find one more extreme, then you've just found, you know, even something truer, right? Truthier, perhaps. Um, so uh, the, the Catechism of the Council of Trent embodies the Catholic Church's teachings. Uh, it was commissioned by the Council of Trent itself. 
It was actually published first as the work of St. Pius V himself in the year 1566. The first edition of the Catechism of the Council of Trent came out during the pontificate and under the name and the seal of Pope St. Pius V. Now, if somebody wants to argue with the first edition of the Catechism of the Council of Trent, published in 1566, under the authority of St. Pius V, well, then I, I feel sorry for them. But when the Catechism of the Council of Trent addresses the question of the baptism of adults, it says this, okay, that the Church is not as concerned to expedite the baptism of adults as she is with children. Meaning that the children were to be baptized as soon as possible. Adults, not so. Because they need to learn the faith, and they need to embrace the faith, and they need to be prepared to be Catholics before their baptism. And this is what the Catechism says. It says the Church's teaching is that an adult who is a catechumen, who is preparing to be baptized, and has the intention to be baptized, but is not baptized, in fact, if that adult should die not being baptized through no, no fault of his own, again, the Church's teaching is that the individual's intention to be baptized and his contrition for his sins will avail him unto justification and grace. Now, you couldn't find a more explicit statement of the doctrine of baptism of desire than that. And this is reflected in the, in the actual council documents on the question of baptism. And there are those who rashly, obstinately, arrogantly deny this. They will not accept it. Uh, they will quote this passage and that passage. Anything that contradicts their interpretation and their understanding, they will not allow. And rather than refute them with any credible, you know, reasonable <laughs> statements, they, they merely heap invective upon their enemies, just like Martin Luther did. That's exactly what Martin Luther did. Uh, calling them names and, and so on. And, you know, it, it's degrading. And you think any Catholic with uh, an ounce of uh, common sense and, and common decency would say there was something wrong with that, you know, even if they were tempted to follow them in their error. But, uh, you know, there are those who do that, unfortunately. <clears throat> so uh, they, they, these are people who preclude uh, rational discussion uh, and faithful discussion, you know, pious discussion of these things. So, um, the, the fact is that the Catholic Church does, in fact, teach in the Council of Trent, in the Catechism of the Council of Trent, by the authority of St. Pius V, uh, going back to the first edition of the Catechism of the Council of Trent, the Roman Catechism. And I say that because there are those who say, well, this was a later interpolation that came along when modernists inserted that. No, I'm sorry. I went right back to the 1566 edition, the very first work of the Catechism of the Council of Trent, St. Pius V, that says exactly that, word for word. You can look at the Latin. You don't have to know, really know Latin. If you, if you, looked at, if you look at it, the Latin, and you look, compare it to the English translation that is given in, in even modern translations, for the most part, um, you'll find that they are that the English translation is very accurate. And you don't have to be a Latinist to see that. Okay. Well, let's... If anybody wants to, wants to see that, I'd be glad, to, if they want to you know, send in an address, I'd be glad to um, send them a copy of the English and the Latin straight out of the, out of the 1566 edition. Uh, or we could even post it on the website. I've, Let's see yeah. it. See them side by side. I believe you you did that on a previous program, Father, during oh. the, the catechism okay. series and on yeah. the uh, the treatment of baptism. Okay. I believe you yeah. did that. Where I actually put it on the screen, comparing yeah. the 
the Latin and English from that that fifteen sixty six edition. Right. Um, so we we can we, put, we seem to be coming with these same questions over and over again, which leads me to believe that people really haven't done a lot of research. Perhaps not. Because if they researched what Catholics believe, that see, we we've addressed this question. We have a number of times. All right. Well, let's go from there, Father, to limbo now. So we have a question regarding the limbo of infants. Will their souls be reunited with their bodies at the last judgment? Or since, as I assume, they will not be judged because they have no deeds by which to be judged, will they be absent from the general resurrection and remain purely spiritual beings? They will resurrect. Their bodies will re-resurrect. Re okay. Yeah, the resurrection is that if you have deeds, moral deeds, that your body is going to resurrect. The resurrection is because human beings were created by God, by nature, to be body and soul. And uh, <clears throat> the body is destined for corruption because of original sin. But it must be resurrected because, again, the body will be recreated, okay? And uh, joined to the soul in the condition, you know, the soul was in when the person died. So the resurrection extends to all mankind who are subject to, to uh, original sin. Okay. Last question, Father. <clears throat> Could you cover the topic of the alt-right and white nationalism? Would you agree that white nationalism can be classed as a neo-pagan heresy since many clamor for the days of Thor and the Nazis? Oh, but would I condemn it as what? Uh, as would you a, classify it as a neo-pagan heresy? Neo-pagan heresy. Well, uh, I don't know. You know, heresy, again, has an actual theological definition. It's, it's defined by law, the Code of Canon Law. So, um, you know, again, people use heresy. You know, you know what it reminds me of? Uh, people will come and say, well, I, I cussed. You know, I cussed. Uh, they accuse themselves of cussing. Well, what, what, is that cursing? Uh, or they'll go, I, well, I was swearing, you know. But the words don't really mean what they really mean in moral theology, you know, in church technical parlance. Uh, I mean, there's a difference between swearing and cursing and blasphemy and obscenity. There's a very unique meaning to each one of these things, which I won't go into right now. But uh, in any case, people just seem to use heresy whenever they think doesn't sound right when it comes to the Catholic faith. So I, I don't know that these all, and I, I've heard of alt-right, and I must say, I don't really know what this means, and I never really cared, you know, that much. Um, but um, as far as this, uh, what, what did he call white it? White nationalism. White nationalism. Okay, as though whiteness is is a national form of nationalism. But there are a lot of white people in different nations, so that's and they might think of that as their white nationalism, as though they are a nation unto themselves if they're white. Uh, I don't know, but in any case, uh, regardless of. You know, the use of language today is so perverted. It's almost impossible to have a rational discussion with people about facing. <laughs> um, is it wrong? Yeah. Is it condemned by the church? Of course. I mean, if the idea is that whiteness makes you good and non-whiteness makes you bad, uh, obviously that's, the church condemns that. She always has condemned that. It's a very evil thing. Any more than it's right to say whiteness makes you bad and, and non-whiteness makes you good. I mean, it's impossible. Um, for anyone to legitimately to say or think such a thing, you know, uh, whiteness is not a virtue, and uh, but neither is blackness. Uh, you know, whiteness is not a vice, and neither is is blackness, or anything in between. Um, uh, and every, I mean, whiteness knows different shades of whiteness, and blackness knows different shades of blackness, and everything in between. As I say, they're all different shades. Um, of color, they're, they're referring to, I guess, some kind of cultural background. The church has absolutely condemned Nazism, though. If we're talking about racism, and that's what we're really dealing with, uh, not necessarily uh, white nationalism, but white racism and black racism, then the church has absolutely condemned that. Um, uh, you know, on multiple fronts, it's 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 a, it's it, it's a multiple vices rolled into one, like a charity, like a justice, etc., etc., etc. But um, 
you, I mean, if you were to take the Catholic Church, uh, you know, her teaching is that uh, uh, God created all, regardless, you know, their uh, cultural background, uh, tone, color tone of their skin, or whatever. God created all, gave all immortal souls in his own image and likeness. Christ died for all mankind. Um, uh, black, white, and all, all the shades of both, you know, in between. And so um, uh, the church herself has numbered all, all such people. The church has had her missionaries going into the Teutonic lands of the north of Europe and her missionaries going into the southern lands, uh, lands to the south into Africa. Uh, the churches had our missionaries going everywhere, laying down their lives, you know. And those missionaries have been white and black themselves, going to peoples white and black, and brown and red and yellow and whatever else they want to, you know, define as far as colors, because the colors are all like, I mean, let's face it, I'm not white, okay, in the sense that, uh, you know, I mean, even, even the hair is really white, white, you know. All you have to do is walk into a paint store and you look at all the paint chips and you can see, boy, there's a huge variety here. Um, but um, it is, you know, if not a heresy, if they don't explicitly say something that the church is formally condemned as heretical, they're saying something that is immoral. And um, that um, every Catholic has to reject, you know. You just can't accept that. Is it Nazism? It's a form of Nazism. You know, promoting an Aryan race, this, this fictitious Aryan race, uh, as though they were designed to be, they were meant to be the dominators of the world. I mean, this is an, inherent, this is an error going back so far. I mean, the Khazars embraced Judaism uh, because of its uh, idea of, of like this, this, Messianism, they're, design, they're going to dominate the world. Islamics, you know, they want their Mahdi to give them power over, over all the world and all the peoples of the world, right? And, uh, and so on, right? Uh, it's all about power. It's all about power. It's all about power. Selfish power. And it's all a form of Satanism. And Satan will use these movements motivated by pride uh, to fulfill his own, his own wish and gain his own power over them all. It reminds you of Lord of the Rings, you know, they have the multiple rings, you know, the, the ring race wear the different rings, but there's one ring to rule them all. And uh, Sauron, the, the serpent, right, with the serpent eye, right, in, uh, what's the name of the... Uh, Mordor. Mordor, yeah, <laughs> right. Um, uh, you know, the valley of death or whatever. Uh, you know, he's going to rule them all. He's going to run them all, control them all. Uh, and, and behind this is just Lucifer. Mm -hmm. Father, do you think we could say that this uh, the fascination with, with race, do you think that that could possibly stem from uh, man's uh, utter disregard for his soul and how modern man uh, seems to focus almost exclu exclusively on the body? rather than the soul. So, of course, when we our society obsesses over the body, the body, the body, and totally ignores and disregards yeah. man's soul, of course we're going to begin to, to notice the differences in, in uh, our bodies, and mm. we'll kind of get in, in groups based on that. Could you say that? Tom, I think you're right. I think you're exactly right about that. Yeah, yeah the more you, you lose contact and lose the concept of the soul, yes, that's what you're left with. You're left with these divisions, you know, according to all the accidental characteristics of the body. And they become um, monumental, you know, they, they become magnified so that it's us against them. But, you know, somebody was explaining to me once, this, this is the result of original sin, you know. Somebody was telling me once <clears throat> that in the school he went to, I don't know, was it Brooklyn or where, okay, you had the, the whites and kind of against against you know the other races you know who are they were there right so-called whites if you want to call them that you know uh, more or less whites against more or less non-whites I guess um, there were probably some of the whites who were darker 
than some of the non-whites, you know, who were lighter than they were. I mean, you know, this color business is really ridiculous. But anyway, uh, but when when that uh, kind of faded out, when the when they the whites uh, got control, they started. They were fighting among, you know, yeah, the Italians were whites, right, against the Irish or whites, you know. Well, the, the Irish were lighter colored than the, 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 the Italian. <clears throat> but anyway, they're, they're fighting it out, okay? But they're both Catholics, right? <clears throat> um, and then when that kind of went its way, then the Irish were fighting with each other, you know? They began fighting with the Northern Irish and the Southern Irish and all. And then they, they, they'd be picking fights, you know, pretty soon you're picking fights between um, you know the, the short guys and the tall guys, and the heavy guys and the and the and the thin guys, and and you know you can always find some division to fight, but they will. They will always find some way to divide, even if there's nobody left to fight. The last two people on earth are going to fight it out. <laughs> They'll find something to fight about, yeah. and that's original sin. <clears throat> it is uh, the grace of God that enables people to understand. That we have souls, we're, we're all creatures of the same God who created us in, those, in His own image and likeness. We have the same Redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ. And there is heaven and there is hell for all of us, right? And uh, we all have the same purpose of being created by God, that we are all destined by God, or wanted by God to have, share an eternal life with Him. Right? And um, it is only the teaching of Christ that really makes that understand, understood and understandable. So uh, this is a false, I mean, I would have to say it's a false religion. If you want to say it's a, it's a heresy for that, I mean, anything that magnifies a difference in human beings as though it were some kind of a, a ultimate principle for which we must order, around which we must order our lives and for which we must order to give our lives, I mean, it's like a false religion. Obviously, the church condemns false religion. Yeah, and Father, it's uh, it's just it's ludicrous to see how 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 much our society focuses on this idea of, of race and solving racism and, and all all of these things, yeah. and they just totally ignore the only real solution to that, which is Catholicism. Which, yeah. if you think about it, Catholic that word essentially means universal. You know, we're mm -hmm. we're all one, and so Catholicism is the only answer to that problem. Um, and, and they'll di totally, totally disregard that. They'll entertain every other possible solution and come up with the craziest ideas, but ignore the only one solution mm -hmm. that we have, which is Catholicism. Mm -hmm. so. yeah, well, you see a sense of competition even in children, of course, clearly. Right? But that sense of competition is not the same as uh, you know, wanting to destroy the other person because he's your enemy, because you know, he's different for you. Mm -hmm. But now we're talking about something truly satanic. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you're right. I agree with you totally. I think you've got a very good analysis of that. Cool. Well, thanks for being here tonight, Father. I appreciate your time. Well, absolutely, Tom. I appreciate your time, too, by the way. No and uh, again, I ask people to keep in their prayers as little children sure. who uh, very much need those prayers right now. We can do that. I thank you for that. Okay. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.